0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast, Mr. Skull. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's been a year since we last chatted. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show, I should say. I know we're going to be talking about a heavy topic, but it's important.
1: Yes, Robbie, I uh, agree on its importance, and it's also very welcome to be back. It's hard to imagine a whole year has gone by since we last talked. Um, But it's nice to have the chance to re-engage and talk about what is I think are a really major issue for all the societies I know about Um, your society, Australia, but obviously the ones I'm more familiar with uh, the United States, where I mostly live and and the United Kingdom, where I live uh, now, uh, at at least for the next several months. So, um, you know, madness is one or mental illness as we now prefer to call it um, is a condition that uh, i think has existed in all known societies and we've struggled to understand it and to cope with it Uh, mentally ill people really are when when this particularly at the severe end of the of the spectrum uh, are people that don't make sense to the rest of us. Their behaviors don't make sense. Their beliefs don't make sense. They seem not to respond to the world in the same way we do. They almost seem to inhabit a different universe in lots of ways, whether that be emotionally or it be cognitively in terms of, you know, what they they know perceive about the world. So um, they've been a profound puzzle uh, for millennia, they are, are they often create vast problems for themselves, but also for those around them. And societies have struggled to comprehend and work out how to deal with them. And I think even down to the present, while it's not the case, there's been no progress, the progress has been distinctly limited. Um, and if you ask, You know, the labels we mostly uh, see these days around the, the most serious forms of mental illness would include things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depressive illness, major depression, and dementia, Alzheimer's and related conditions. And we have some clues, I think, surrounding Alzheimer's. It definitely seems to be rooted in changes in the brain but why those come about is still very uncertain but for the other conditions if you if you ask uh an informed psychiatrist who's willing to be honest about the situation and many are uh, and you say well what causes schizophrenia the answer is we don't know what causes major depression we don't know Uh, some people within the profession continue to believe that these conditions are going to turn out to be purely a matter of brain disease. Um, I don't accept that. I do think it's very, very likely, even though we don't know the underlying biology, I think it's quite likely there will be a serious biological component of these illnesses or some of them. But I don't think that will be the whole picture. I think with mental illness, it's very clear that the environment, the uh, social surroundings in which somebody grows up, the experiences they have, the deprivations that they may suffer from, um, the the kind of whole uh, tenor of their lives makes a big difference here. And so what you end up with is that almost certainly mental illness has a bio, the more serious forms at least, have a biological component and a a social and a psychological component. And the problem is for all our efforts, we haven't been able to unpack what that is. So for a long time, I mean, stretching back a couple of centuries, There was an observation that mental illness seemed to run in families, that some families were were more prone to depression or to other forms of mental illness.
0: Genetically predisposed? Yeah.
1: So there was, you know, and family studies and twin studies, which had huge problems, nonetheless seemed to suggest that we would find um, a genetic component to these these, uh, disorders and And so, when we began when we managed to cut up DNA, uh, we had techniques to replicate it and to isolate it and and we decoded human DNA in two thousand and three. The expectation was that we would find a gene or genes for schizophrenia or for depression. And we poured a lot of money into into this line of work as we poured a lot of money into neuroscience on the the assumption that mental illness is simply brain disease. And so, for example, by the 2015, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, usually abbreviated as NIMH in America, one of the main funders of research into mental illness, Tom Insel, who was the director, stepped down and he gave an interview and he said and he's repeated this recently in a book he published a bit about a year or two ago. He said, um, while I've been director, I've invested almost all my resources in genetics and neuroscience. And I have spent, oh, I think about somewhere north of $20 billion with a B." And he said, um, I funded some really cool science in genetics and neuroscience and the contribution they've made to the better treatment of the mentally ill has been zero the mentally ill are no better off these days than when i started investing all that money now that's not to say that some of those avenues of research may at some point pay off But you do begin to wonder about whether a society that's pouring all its money into one back bucket when it comes to mental illness is kind of missing the plot, is not understanding that, you know, one of the things we've got to cope with is how can families be helped to cope with people who are often profoundly disabled? What can be done to make the lives of these people more bearable, given that we we have things that help symptomatically, but they don't cure. We don't have a psychiatric penicillin. We we do have new drugs. Well, we have drugs that first emerged on the scene in the early 1950s, almost by accident, by serendipity, as we like to say. Um, And those drugs for some people really are a help. And I don't want to join the Scientologists and say, Toxic psychiatry, these psychiatrists are just poisoning their patients. On the other hand, it certainly is the case that whether you look at um, antipsychotic drugs, so-called, or antidepressants, um, they come with some very serious side effects for many patients. And they don't, as I say, cure them. What they can do if we take antipsychotics if we take somebody who's schizophrenic they have a range of issues and problems they have problems with with their cognition they have problems relating to other people um, they uh, they lose the ability to interact socially very effectively um, they often hear voices suffer from hallucinations so when you look at that complex of problems which are profoundly disabling and distressing and sometimes lead to really unfortunate circumstances. When you look at that and you say, well, what do antipsychotics do? Well, for the patients for whom they work, and there are a lot of patients for whom they don't work, but for the patients for whom they work, what they do is damp down the delusions and the hallucinations, the voices people are hearing, the strange thoughts they're having, uh, maybe the idea that uh, people are persecuting them or can read their minds, that sort of thing, or that the television is talking to them specifically. It, for some patients, those very distressing symptoms are alleviated by the drugs, and that's certainly a good thing. But the social withdrawal, the cognitive problems people have. Uh, the the inability to feel pleasure, for example, those things aren't tackled by the drugs that we have. And um, because we've been, the pharmaceutical industry and psychiatry since the early 1950s has been searching for new drugs. And really, although they've developed different ones, they come with, their own side effects, and they they have the same limitations as the ones we discovered right at the beginning of the 1950s. So we don't have a penicillin. We have a drug or a set of drugs which um, work for some patients a bit and not for others. Uh, and they come with potentially very serious side effects.
0: So... Um, well, how much of the focus is on actually making the patient better to have a sustainable life compared to making sure that the patient isn't a problem to others.
1: Again, you know, what patients need, generally speaking, is not just medication. They also need other kinds of social support and perhaps other kinds of therapy. Um, But it's very difficult to provide those effectively. And so Psychiatrists have tended to fall back on drugs as their primary intervention. Um, And for a long time, they tended to ignore the side effects that come. You know, any drug you take, there is, as someone once said, everybody thinks it's Milton Friedman, but it wasn't. There's no free lunch, right? So if you take aspirin or you take ibuprofen, Uh, For a headache, for example, it with many people, those headaches, it will help you Uh, once in a while. If you take aspirin, it will cause your stomach to bleed. If you take too much ibuprofen, you will damage your kidneys sometimes irrevocably. Right. So even those drugs that we buy over the counter and we take pretty freely, we have to be very careful. Right. Um, With. Psychiatric drugs, um, you have much more serious potential problems emerging. Some patients develop symptoms that resemble Parkinson's disease, relatively immobile, sometimes shaking uncontrollably. Others develop um, facial tics and noises and jerky movements that, ironically enough, lay people often think uh, They see somebody coming down the street, mumbling and shouting and twisting and jerking. They think the person is mad, is mentally ill. Well, yeah, perhaps. But a lot of what you're seeing there is the side effect of the medication. If you're on antidepressants, and a very large fraction of the population now take antidepressants, um, it, it very frequently, if affects people's sex lives very much for the worse Um, it often creates other kinds of side effects and what's worse is that trying to come off those drugs once you're on them is exceedingly difficult many patients find it close to impossible so they're kind of trapped on the drugs now as again i want to stress for some patients Those drugs are very important. They make them feel a lot better and less suicidal and so forth. But what the data show is that the um, increment of improvement, if you like, that the drugs provide over just the passing of time, because many depressions release over time, the incremental improvement you get from drugs is relatively small. And so we'd like if we're going to go the drug treatment route, we need better drugs. But the major psychiatric companies have pulled out of doing research in this area. Now uh, they couldn't figure out new targets beyond the ones they'd already they already had. They were producing a lot of copycat drugs, but the drugs didn't didn't change much uh, in terms of their actual efficacy um, with respect to antipsychotic drugs, which are used for treating things like schizophrenia, but bleed into treating other forms of mental illness as well. Um, we got in the in the 1990s, partly because of those neurological problems I mentioned, the Parkinson's, what's called tardive dyskinesia, the jerky movements, and so forth, uh, we got some new drugs created that supposedly were better. Well, they had somewhat less of those side effects, although not none. But they cause people, for example, to gain massive amounts of weight. Uh, Are are you on the metric system in Australia, or are you on... I'm in the United States. Oh, you're in the United States. Yeah,
0: we use just pounds.
1: Okay, so sorry. Um, I I talk to so many different interlocutors. I
0: sound Australian
1: sometimes. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes people think I do, too, but I don't. Um, But anyway... um, The new generation of drugs were called atypical or second generation drugs, and they don't work any better, it turns out. They're much more expensive, or they were because they were under patent. And instead of quite as many of the neurological uh, side effects, they create immense weight gain, 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds over the course of a year's treatment. Along with that comes heightened risk of heart disease, metabolic disorder, diabetes. So some very severe kinds of. So it's a trade off. Uh, As medicine often is, you're trying a, a kind of cost benefit analysis. And some patients don't get those severe side effects. And the drugs help with their symptoms. They're the lucky ones then there are a bunch of patients who get very bad side effects and some relief from the drugs often very difficult to decide is the improvement worth the price as it were and then there are a group of patients for whom the drugs simply don't work so all they get are the negative side effects so we really if we're talking about drug treatment which i think you know has to be part of the equation we need better drugs but It's not clear where the research is going on that will produce those. It's not all that's needed. Many of the mentally ill can't work, can't provide for themselves. So they need housing. They need some kind of social program to provide them with contact with other people. I mean, isolation, you you spoke when we were talking before we started recording about the upsurge in uh, mental health problems among the young, among people in high school, people in college, uh, much of which seems to have been triggered by um, COVID and the isolation that came along. And then the loss of, uh, we're now seeing a big loss in terms of um, uh, educational achievement—you know—people fell behind; they lost that. But there was also a social loss. You—you, you, the only way you could socialize is the way we're doing right now, which is a poor, co- a poor substitute for actual
0: face-to-face. Yeah. Uh, well, that t- took a year. That took a year too. Zoom didn't really hit the market until like about half a exactly. year. Exactly. It in. was a lot. There was a lot. I mean, it, you know, in
1: Britain, for example, the isolation was really extreme. You weren't allowed to go outside. But for a short period, and you couldn't move more than five or 10 minutes from your house, and then you had to go back home. So people people died in hospital, and their families couldn't visit them. It was just a tragic series of events. And for young people, you know, when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, this is when you're becoming an adult, you're learning social skills, you're beginning to uh, learn how uh, to live a normal life and to develop social skills to manage with your peers. And then when you're isolated for a couple of years, you, you know, you can't develop those on, on, on your own. And, and then you're thrust back in it, but you've missed those two. It's hard to recoup them. So, you know, once again, that suggests the important role that environment can play in disturbing people's mental equilibrium. Another very powerful example is um, what in World War I was called shell shock, which reemerged in World War II when we're told it was the greatest generation. You know, people didn't talk about that war. They didn't, there's no similar consciousness of shell shock as a psychiatric condition produced by hellish combat conditions. But in World War II, American troops wrote down psychiatrically, two and three times as often as the American troops in World War I. It was called something different. It was called combat exhaustion to try and soften it, or combat fatigue, or combat neurosis. And, of course, fast forward to Vietnam years, and we get PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: And also cluster headaches. Yeah. the. Uh, uh
1: the inventors of, of that category, the people who devised it, wanted to call it post-Vietnam syndrome because they were psychiatrists working with Vietnam veterans against the war who claimed the, the war had ruined their lives. And um, American psychiatry, this was the time of Nixon, they thought, well, you know, that's too po- Political uh, category to call it post Vietnam syndrome. Uh, and so instead, it came, they developed this more general sense of post traumatic stress disorder. Now, over time, the range of things that can cause that has broadened a great deal. Uh, in some ways, I think defensively, in other ways, perhaps not so defensively. Uh, So what I'm talking about here is, um, you know, when, when people are in combat, they're forced to see, to do, and to take part in things that we, in ordinary times, most of us would find morally abhorrent. Shooting and killing other people, watching your best friend's brain be blown off next to you and being spattered with it. Any number of absolutely horrific things, the things we're seeing in the Middle East that Hamas did and now.
0: They're just showing it on the television, too. So it's affecting just common citizens. And so um, initially
1: it was things like, well, what would be analogous to the terrible psychological impact of being part of that? And remember, most soldiers didn't break down, don't break down, but a very significant fraction faced with that. Do and did. But um, rape and um, sexual violence was easily seen as something else that I mean, fortunately, I can I only have to imagine what that would be like. But but I think it doesn't take very great imagination to realize how um, destructive of your sense of self and your sense of security and your identity. Uh, an event like that must be for a woman or yeah, for a guy.
0: Traumatic survivors; a lot of their um, statistics show that they commit suicide. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an awful. And then to
1: you know terrible, cataclysmic events, um, uh, hurricanes perhaps, or, or major that destroy people's homes and possessions and their lives. So it became easy, and and you know, so gradually it kind of spread, and then. In the early 20th century people started to say well you can get stressed out by watching television image of this well i start to think that's taking things too far it's a, it's a yes it, it it's assault assaults our senses to see these images they're profoundly disturbing it to my mind it's not the same thing as being in the trenches or being sexually assaulted those are quantitatively and qualitatively different kinds of experiences. But any event, look at that. Um, what causes those things? It's not biology. Although in the First World War, some of the army doctors and the generals tried to say the people breaking down were um, uh, vulnerable people. They were defective people, and that's why they broke down it became increasingly apparent you couldn't say that i mean some of the victims of shell shock for example were some of the bravest men in the war they had fought two or three years they had seen awful things they had done awful things they had they had been very brave and then suddenly they fell apart mm. so it was clear environment could cause that and and that's one of the few conditions in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that the American Psychiatric Association publishes, where they say clearly, this is a mental disorder caused by the environment, not by the brain, not by biology. Now, they may think the brain is getting rewired under the pressure of all these these circumstances. And that's something that's worth Paying attention to for a minute as we talk about these things,
0: I have to ask though. But don't you think that there's some societal implications of shoving graphic content like that on the television? It's not like serving. It's not like being an experience. But we have, especially in today's age, there's a lot of people that are barely hanging on. As it is, and I, I there was a
1: you know I think it can desensitize some people. It can distress some people to a massive extent. If you're already Uh, experiencing uh, problems, that kind of thing certainly can make them worse. I, you know, I worry about the content of X, for example, uh, being beamed in. You know, it it clearly can exacerbate. People get caught into an online community and that starts to really affect the way they think about the world, they perceive the world, they experience the world. And yes, of course, that's important. I mean, I'm arguing that environment matters. That's part of the environment, particularly for your generation, much more so than for me. Uh, My publishers are very upset I don't have a Facebook page. I don't, you know, they want me to do that because it helps, obviously, uh, to have that online presence is, is, uh, is useful. But it can also be destructive. We know, for example uh particularly with teenagers and even younger kids there's a lot of online bullying and you know it often leads kids to kill themselves i mean it's that serious a problem so
0: yes we, we we certainly uh need need to uh you mentioned something before about you know the past compared to now it's not much different but if you really look at like I would say they'll fix that we've seemed to have always had is that if we see someone with an illness, we kind of want them to go somewhere and get it out of our hair a little bit and let it be handled. I see that happen today as well, too. And I think it starts with that desensitization. Uh, that's a big problem because we just are, we're not connected as much as there's a stigma behind the psychiatric stuff. And I get it. And there there's a troubled past to it. Um, there's just a big misunderstanding as well, too, amongst people on understanding mental health issues. You know, they hear something, they look up a diagnostic or they look up a diagnosis and they think that they have it. Then they start getting on a pills, which could eventually cause them to have that issue. I mean, this whole medical thing, it's all about like testing throughout history.
1: I, I think you put your finger on something very important there, Robbie, about what's different now than even 30 years ago. Um, which is the internet has been a, an an extraordinary force for change in our society, and in some ways, it's brought great benefits. But it also creates new possibilities for harm. And one of the things that can happen um, is that people can easily go online and look up if somebody hints, "Oh, you might be bipolar." Well, you go online and you look at that and you start thinking, yeah, that's me, right? Um, And uh, in that sense, it may fix a problem that if it, I mean, when I say fix it, it it can stabilize it, it can make it real, it can be part of that person's identity, where absent looking that stuff up, they might have thought, well, you know, I'm having... uh, a depressed time right now, but I'm not manic depressive. I'm not bipolar. Um, so it, yes, it can it can inform and reinforce a sense of identity rather than of I can do something about this. Um, and so, perversely, it, it it can be bad. One of the things that when people go to medical school and learn to become a doctor they start learning about all these diseases. I'm not talking about psychiatric diseases now, I'm talking about all kinds of physical diseases to which we're vulnerable. And it's a well-known feature of that, that that medical students start to think, oh, I've got that, (laughs) I've got that, I've got that. And and they have to learn to overcome that tendency to pathologize and to think, oh my God, I'm one of those, Uh, I've got that kind of disease so um i i'm not saying nothing has changed um we no longer most of us not everybody most of us we don't believe that madness is a supernatural inflict, affliction that somebody's had a spell passed on uh cast on them or you know that god has punished them for some sin uh, that was a very common belief well into the nineteenth century, and, and still persists in some quarters.
0: So The Salem witch trials, right there for you. Yeah, right.
1: So you know, you, it, it, we've largely abandoned that. We've tried. We've tried to understand mental illness as a natural phenomenon. Uh, part, you know, and we've looked for things that we think could cause it. Uh, for a long time in America, after World War II, into the mid-1970s, the dominant narrative was psychoanalytic. So the problem was you had a refrigerator mother, and that's why you were schizophrenic or, or autistic. Um, we don't believe that any anymore, although family dynamics clearly can play some, some sort of role. But we don't believe that cruel kind of notion. Um, we... Uh, we used to think a hundred years ago, or a little more, that people with serious mental illness were uh, people in whom somehow evolution had run in reverse. They were degenerates. They were people whose brains were malformed.
0: They called um, them mongoloids
1: so the, on their first. yeah, there was just all these really nasty uh, you know, when I, When I write about the 19th century, I'm forced to use terms like madness, lunacy, insanity, lunatic, right, idiot, imbecile. All of those terms were respectable terms used by doctors at the time. And we now recoil from them because they embody such an obvious stigmatizing element to them that we find distressing. But oddly enough, when, when patient, some patients began to rebel against their psychiatric diagnoses or their psychiatric treatments to claim the drugs were poisoning them, for example, um, many of those critics proudly called themselves mad, not mentally ill. They didn't want to call themselves mentally ill because they said, no, we, we don't have a medical condition. We're, with something else. Um, We're seeing in a related thing, again, um, an article I was reading in the Washington Post, I think yesterday, about autism and autism spectrum disorder. And a number of people suffering from autism have claimed it simply uh, should be accepted as a form of neurodiversity. Well, that works reasonably well for some people in the, in the spectrum who manage reasonable lives. It doesn't work very well for um, people with the most severe kinds of autism, where they, their language skills are close to nil, where they self-harm, where they're violent, where their um, IQ is often, as far as we can measure it, very low, where they're unable to interact with other people to form emotional bonds and attachments. Um, And there's a huge fight going on at the moment between um, some of the famous people who claim to be on the spectrum or, or outright autistic and who've managed to have successful lives and careers and say, look, I have special talents and you're trying to cure them by curing autism. And then there are families trying to cope with children so profoundly disturbed and, and uh, broken um, who see that talk of neurodiversity as actively standing in the way of trying to develop effective treatments for their offspring, for their children. Um, I knew, I know a family who had. Uh, severely autistic um, child um, who died at the age of 40 just a couple of months ago and uh, through enormous dedication and and parental involvement and refusal to institutionalize her she they were told she'd never learned to walk never learned to talk she managed both those things somewhat but she was always she always had to be in very sheltered care. She couldn't survive in the world, um, and so you know I'm very troubled by uh, those again who deny the reality of the suffering that's going on here, uh, and want to simply suggest, well, it's a sort of range of normal. Uh, it's not normal for somebody. With skits, schiz- you know, for us to deal with somebody walking down the street naked, screaming obscenities, walking up to people and punching them in the face, pushing them in front of a subway subway car. um that's not that's not reasonable diversity to accommodate people like that. those Those are very severe problems,
0: and it happens quite frequently. And we too. ought to
1: welcome uh, whatever moves we can make to provide as much humane care as we can, and to seek to understand how it is that one of our fellow human beings ends up like that. Not dismiss it or not say, oh, we should just tolerate this because it's just part of human diversity. Um, At a certain point, that's not the case. How much, again, to talk about um, emotional upset, All of us experience, some will experience it if we haven't already at some point in our lives, grief, sadness, sense of that we failed at something rather profoundly important to our lives, Um, breakdowns of close social relationships, um, you know, families pulling apart and divorce, all of these things are part and parcel of our human condition. But at some point, when people become so uh, sad, so depressed, so curled up in a little ball somewhere, unable to um, summon the energy to do anything, um, you know, at some point that becomes not just temporary sadness grief we have to learn to cope with but something much more profound um and so uh you know that's one of the things i guess i've emphasized much more in my more, most more recent my writings probably the last 10 15 years is just trying to acknowledge the amount of suffering that this these various conditions bring in their train, how disruptive they are for not just the lives of the person suffering the mental illness, but for everyone around them. Um, and therefore, the need for us to recognize the reality of that situation, be aware that sometimes our inve- interventions, which purported to be therapeutic, purported to be helpful, actually turned out to be quite the reverse. So in my most recent book, Desperate Remedies, I talk, for example, about lobotomies, the crazy idea that by damaging the most human part of our brain, the prefrontal, or prefrontal cortex, we would, we, we could make the mentally ill better rather than in many cases damaging them even more Um, so there's no question that um, we've done things psychiatrists have done things society's done things which have been profoundly damaging i think shutting down the mental hospitals without providing the alternatives that could make community care actually work was a societal disgrace and so i look back at the victorians who built the mental hospitals and thought that was the solution to serious mental illness and i'm very critical of that because mental hospitals shut up people in a double sense they locked them away but they also silenced them nobody could hear their voices it's called mausoleums of the
0: mad is what she called it right
1: and if they did object Well, they did voice uh, concerns. Very often, those were seen as part of their madness, of their mental illness, not as genuine concerns that needed to be addressed. So, mental hospitals had problems. Patients in them were extremely vulnerable. In the early 20th century, as I spell out in Desperate Remedies, a host of experimental treatments were imposed on them without their consent and without their family's consent. That often were profoundly damaging, not helpful. Um, On the other hand, when we closed the mental hospitals and we didn't provide a suitable set of alternatives, what have we ended up with? Well, the largest, the three largest inpatient psychiatric facilities in the United States today are the Los Angeles County Jail. The Cook County Jail in Chicago and Rikers Island in New York. Large fractions of the inmates there are suffering from serious mental problems. And we've chosen, we used to lock them up in mental hospitals. Now we lock them up in jails. Well, mental hospitals were created in the 19th century, in part because of a desire to rescue the mentally ill from prisons and jails. And now we put them back there. Uh, You spoke of seeing uh, homeless people as you walk around and then they commit some offense, maybe something minor offense against public order. They defecate in public. They shout obscenities at somebody. They threaten them. Or maybe something more severe, more serious. Uh, What happens then? Sometimes they're referred to a mental health facility. The treatment's usually very brief. They're back out on the streets, they offend again, and now they're taken off to jail. Or if they've done something more serious, they're put in in prison for years at a time. And that's the way we're now choosing to cope with a significant fraction of those people, or they can't hold down a job. And so they're cast out into the street. They're homeless, they're living in tents, they're, you know,, you, I spend a lot of time when I'm in america san diego l a San francisco, New, New York. everywhere I go, I see that pathology on the streets in everybody's face and people suffering from serious neglect. Now, not all the homeless obviously are mentally ill um, some of them have substance abuse problems, either alcohol or or illicit drugs others um, it, you know uh, are just unable to provide but given the costs of housing and food they can't they can't afford rent so they're they're homeless but a lot you know a very significant fraction i've seen estimates anywhere between 30 and 45 percent of the homeless are people with very severe mental health problems. And, um, you know, once upon a time, those people would have been in mental hospitals. For the last 50, 60, 70 years, those institutions haven't been available
0: and we haven't constructed alter- alternative structures to help. I thought that was Reagan that shut down the last of the mental institutions. Well, yeah. Um,
1: It was very interesting. That's true in California. Reagan was the governor when this process started and he voiced the ambition to shut these places down completely. Uh, Jerry Brown, who was a Democrat who succeeded him, followed down the same pathway. So it tended to be both ends of the political spectrum. But um, I think what was happening there, Robbie, is the following. On the left, there was a sense these hospitals were dehumanizing, destructive places that, that damaged the people rather than help them. And so they wanted to get rid of the institutions because of that. And they thought naively, I think, that um, the best community, you know, that being out in the community, even if it was not working terribly well, was better than being locked away in one of these Victorian bins. Reagan was motivated, I think, and, and many of the states were motivated by a very different concern. Uh, he didn't like state spending of any sort. He didn't like people who are on the public dole, uh, regardless of whether that was because they were otherwise incapable of providing for themselves. Uh, so he wanted to save money. He wanted to shut down the social safety net. And that became the kind of ideology that's come to rule um britain and the united states britain under margaret thatcher united states under reagan but the people that followed whether they were the bushes or they were clinton uh or blair followed down the same pathway um, basically everything was was left to the marketplace well that's fine for those of us who have the skills and the resources to buy things and to do to afford a decent life but if you're somebody who because of for example mental illness uh or um opiate opiate uh, uh addiction who is incapable of holding a job incapable of providing for food and shelter incapable of developing decent relationships with or with other people what's going to happen to you oh, well um, if everything depends on you being able to buy things and you don't have the means to buy it homelessness jail those are probably what you're going to be confronting um, and that's more and more has been the way our society has trended um, and we don't have, I mean, as a society, we don't seem to have a lot of sympathy or willingness to um, deal with these problems. We, we blame the people for their condition. And sometimes, indeed, they have, I mean, with, with people who become addicted, for example, uh, at some point in the process, they had choices. But beyond a certain point, they lost that ability to choose, right? And that's what we mean by addiction. They're kind of trapped. Um, so, yes, you can say, well, those 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 people initially are to blame for drinking too much or shooting up with heroin uh, or taking crystal meth. Um, but it is also the case once that has established itself for a period of time. Um, they're no longer in control of the situation. And so we can either abandon them, in which case we see what happens, or we can say as a society we have some kind of obligation to try to intervene to alleviate that situa- those situations. And they're, they're myriad in, in nature. I mean,
0: um, I it's ask- also the case. I was yeah. like, could I ask about what about a focus more on personalized medicine? How much do you think that would be able to help out the condition? It just seems like a lot of this is institutionalized kind of how things were taught back then, an old model that has been going on for a long time. I like to believe in doctors. I really do. I've met, I have friends that are really good ones, but the system is pretty messed up. So I'm just curious if it if if that was a way of maybe more focused, personalized, I mean, a lot of the workload, some of these doctors face, it's not their fault, but it's just, I mean,
1: no, it's not. Uh, I mean, we have, one of the things living at the moment in Europe, I've been traveling to partly to give lectures, but also just traveling to see different places. So I've been in Finland, I've been in Poland, I've been in the Netherlands, for example. and you see very little begging, very little, and in Finland, zero. And I was there in in warm months, not so you couldn't say, well, it's because it's so freezing. Um, They have much stronger social safety nets, which have, I think, fended off some of the worst of these problems. It doesn't mean they have the answer to cure mental illness, because if they did, the rest of us would simply copy it. But they are able to avoid some of the worst consequences we see. Um, Medicine in America is a commodity. It's something you buy in the marketplace. You either have insurance if you have a job, or you rely on Medicaid or some other or charity, or you go bankrupt because you can't afford your bills. Um, So that's true for general illness. Um, Mental illness Oddly, throughout the 19th century and into most of the 20th century um, was a form of illness, if that's what it is, that was publicly paid for in the mental hospitals. Right. Um, Taxpayers paid for that, whereas they wouldn't pay for treatment of conventional illness. I don't know how we want to call it non-mental illness. And so that came about, I think, because society recognized that it did not make sense for people who were unable to hold down a job, who were unable to mingle easily with other people, that that they couldn't provide for themselves, and that even their families couldn't over time because the costs associated with treating mental illness were enormous, okay? Now, if we abandon that approach and we don't put something in its place, now, if you're wealthy, your parents, if you're a young person, or your spouse, if if the other spouse is employed, uh, can perhaps pay for access to therapy and to treatment. Um, once you lose those things, once you no longer have a job, when you no longer have a stable home life, where are you going to turn? Um, because for us in America, uh, healthcare is something you pay for, one way or the other. Uh, and these are people who—it's not that they won't pay; they can't pay. And so then there's that dilemma. All right what are we going to do um I'm going to be taking part in a big debate the, the main center of mental health training here in Britain was founded in 1923 it's called the Institute of Psychiatry uh and so it's its 100th anniversary we're going to have a debate next month is it a good thing the mental hospitals disappeared Right. And I'm supposed to argue that it is a good thing that it's disappeared. I told the organizers I could argue either side of that question. But the reason the the reason I could do that is because um neither of these solutions works very well. The so-called community care doesn't work. And the old mental hospitals had really severe drawbacks. Um well so, you know, we're facing a a real, real problem. Um and um I politicians who we normally say, well, they're the ones who are gonna have to solve this problem. Politicians move on. They tend not to, you know, they, they they look at what do I need to do to get reelected the next time and the time after that. Not how am I gonna solve an impossibly complicated problem that's gonna require a lot of money and initially not gonna have obvious payoff. Gonna be hard to do that one, you know. There are a few souls who've tried, um, but it's very, very difficult. And when budgets run short, the mentally ill are ill-equipped to lobby in their own behalf. And their families often are, Ill, are ill-equipped to do it because they're ashamed because of the stigma that surrounds mental illness. They don't want to acknowledge they have a mentally ill member. So, uh, over and over again, you know, in California, for example, where where I live and vote, uh, mental health provision is on the chopping block whenever there's a budget crisis. Uh, I, mentioned earlier there was there's an article in the today's new york times talking about the failure of new york city to cope with uh people with serious mental illness who go on to commit horrible violent crimes
0: just take out blasio it'll fix all your problems yeah exactly well they've all tried you know one after
1: another starting with john Lindsay back in the 60s and all, all Ed, Mayor Ed Koch and, and Bloomberg and oh boy um, but what you see is it gets momentary attention when something awful happens. There was a, an Asian American woman standing on a platform in the subway who was pushed in front of a train and killed uh, under the current mirror and temporarily, there's a huge fuss about it but what the time story shows and you should take a look at it is that once that flurry disappears we're back to a situation where there this structurally just isn't anything there to cope with the problems that exist and the few people who are there supposedly charged with coping with it are either overwhelmed by it or lack the resources or are shut out from the information they need. So they cite cases where an intake worker who's being paid, I don't know, $20,000, $30,000 a year, no psychiatric training, is confronted by a patient claiming they're hearing voices and are going to be violent. And there are pressures on them not to put these people in the in, in hospital because it's going to cost a lot of money. How are they going to judge one way or the other? Uh, and uh, they uh you know they often punt or they just give up i mean it's a it's a hellishly stressful set of challenges to be confronted by on a day-to-day basis uh i certainly wouldn't i think have the mental stamina to be constantly coping realizing there was nothing really much i could do Watching people decompensate, watching awful outcomes, and then going home at night and rinse and repeat the next day—not not a good—not a good situation at all.
0: Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the direction of moving forward with mental oh, health? Oh boy, well, I'd like to be optimistic, but I find it very hard
1: to be. Um, I worry about that because becoming cynical becoming fatalistic sort of helps perpetuate what i know is a deeply dysfunctional situation so trying to expose uh the flaws in the way we approach these problems you know some of some of what drives me to keep working in this field which is in some ways a kind of depressing field to work in quite honestly is the hope that by exposing what what is going on as opposed to the myths that we create um, that it will eventually prompt more effective responses and 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 i think the anger that urban dwellers are expressing now to politicians uh, some of it directed in unfortunate ways but but it it is bringing this problem to the fore. So the governor, the new governor of Oregon, the new governor, the new mayor of Portland, Oregon, the new mayor of San Francisco, of L.A., of, of New York. I don't think they've had very good ideas about the problem, how to fix the problems. But they have announced that it's a major focus that they're going to try to work on. Um, so. Trying to, you know, what you hope uh, research in the field can do is eventually penetrate to them and say, here's the kind of problems you create. And here's why these problems have arisen. And here's why you can't expect a few band-aids to change the situation very much.
0: Just not going to happen.
1: Robbie, I'm gonna have to.
0: No, it's fine, man. You gave me everything that I wanted and more, I could tell you that much. I have, uh, I've actually got to get back to work on a paper I'm working on, but
1: uh, it's been a pleasure to chat again.
0: Yeah, Mr. Skull, please, can you tell people where they can find any of your links? I'll make sure to link it in the description. I can link your Amazon, but if you have a website.
1: People simply go to Amazon, you, you will see and you type in Andrew Skull books, You'll see my most recent one is called Desperate Remedies, and it looks at American psychiatry from its birth in about 1800 all the way down to now, now. Um, More broadly, uh, I, I wrote a book about six or seven years ago called Badness in Civilization, and that looks at mental illness in a much more global way going all the way back to the time of the ancient greeks palestine ancient china all the way up to the present but looking at for example how mental illness has been portrayed in art and in music in even how it's had effects on architecture uh, on politics on culture on religion as well as its medical dimensions as as they've evolved over time and that book is full of um, I was going to say illustrations, but there, there are probably about 150 pictures in there. But they're not just illustrations. They're part of the argument that I'm trying to make about the place that mental illness has occupied in across a whole range of societies. Uh, one of the things, for example, it's important to remember is that in 1300, 1500, even 1700, most people couldn't read. So pictures and statues and stained glass windows and churches told stories that um, were the ways in which ordinary people could make some sense sometimes of this very disturbing set of circumstances. So um, there there are many others of my books that are still available online, but the easiest is simply to go to, to Amazon or for my most recent book was published by Harvard University Press. And if you go to Harvard's website, the, the Harvard University Press website, you'll see that book plus a lot of the reviews it's got it. And um, I was very fortunate it got it got extraordinarily positive reviews um, in a wide range of places, uh, which was gratifying because I put a lot of work into it. <laughs> Um, but anyway, you know, some of the things we've discussed in general terms here, you'll find very much more detailed discussions and um, references to the underlying literature. So, for example, towards the end of Desperate Remedies, I spent a lot of time talking about community care and its problems, about um Psychiatric drugs and their benefits and limitations, neuroscience and genetics and how they may or may not help us solve this riddle. Um, And that, you know, readers will be guided to what I think is the most important literature on those topics, not written by me. Uh, So, you know, when I say that spending all this money on neuroscience and genetics Led, has so far led to a therapeutic dead end, it's reasonable for people to come back to me and say, well, who are you? You're a sociologist. You're not a, a trained psychiatrist. So there I can say, well, go and look at what Thomas Insel has to say, or look at what his predecessor, Stephen Hyman, who runs the Broad Institute at Harvard, have to say about these matters. Hyman will tell you the drugs we have are very mediocre drugs. They're no better than the drugs we found by accident in the early 1950s. So, this is not unqualified me saying these things. These are things that are well documented uh, and sadly are the reality. Um, You know, I wish it were otherwise. I wish we had developed more effective treatments. I hope at some point we may. uh, And I certainly don't want to discourage people from trying the best things we have at our disposal. Because for some people, those are quite literally life saving, or certainly give them a vastly better quality of life than simple, simple neglect. Uh, But it also is a kind of cautionary tale that even well meaning interventions have not always proved wholly beneficial, shall we say. So,
0: Mr. Skull, I appreciate the time. I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode. About the